Hey everyone, we're back to our regularly scheduled programming as we settle into 2022. Yes, and we have some great guests coming up in the weeks ahead. Maggie Gyllenhaal, Beanie Feldstein, Pablo Lorraine, to name just a few. And today's guest is Daniel Day Kim. So let's get things started. Do we remember how to do this? I'm Mark Olson. And I'm Yvonne Villarreal. This is The Envelope, the LA Times podcast where we dive deep with your favorite stars from TV and film. You probably know Daniel best from shows like the ABC drama Lost and CBS's reboot of Hawaii Five-0. He's got those bingeable TV roles on lock. Oh, for sure. But you know, in addition to his acting, Daniel has been making waves as a producer and as an activist. He's really used his platform to address the rise in racist attacks against the AAPI community. Whether the country we call home chooses to erase us or include us, because you may consider us statistically insignificant now, but we are 23 million strong. We are united and we are waking up. So today we talk about his activism, navigating Hollywood, and the challenges he comes up against as an Asian man in this industry. Plus, we talk about his first lead role ever. He stars in National Geographic's anthology series, Hot Zone. Anthrax spores do not just die. They settle. They lie in wait. This season is called Anthrax, and it takes place just after 9-11 as a string of bioterrorism acts cause widespread panic. Daniel plays Matthew Riker, an FBI agent tasked with tracking down the anthrax killer. It's a ticking time bomb. I saw it with my own eyes. Get out. Daniel, welcome to The Envelope. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right into things. Matthew Riker, the FBI agent you play on The Hot Zone, is your first leading role. How do you feel about that? I feel good. (laughs) There's really nothing to feel bad about. Um, I've been working in the business now for over 30 years, and I've done my share of, you know, under fives, recurrings. I was even an extra. So I've really climbed the ladder, in a sense. And it's nice that after 30 years, I finally gotten to this point. Yeah, because at this point in your career, like you said, you've been doing this for three decades now. Does the size of the role matter to you? Sure. Uh, does size matter is what you're asking. <laughs> um, you know, it does matter, but it's not the only criterion. Um, does it say something that is unexpected? Does it tell a story that I haven't heard before? Is it a character that I have not played before? Uh, you know, there are a lot of different qualifications for what determines uh, a role that I take. Mm-hmm. Well, what comes with being at the top of the call sheet now? Like, what have you observed on sets that you've been on and in the way others take on the role that you wanted to emulate or maybe be sure not to emulate? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, after sitting on the sidelines for as long as I have, you know, I have gotten to see my fair share of number ones, uh, so to speak, uh, and how they've done things. And I, I've i learned a lot of lessons. And a lot of those lessons have been what not to do. For instance, don't make people feel inferior. Don't cause a toxic environment on set. Don't make it harder for other people to work. Don't let your insecurities and how difficult your particular situation might be affect others' morale. And, you know, I think I've really just 
placed an emphasis on harmony. Uh, it's something that I've always tried to work on as an actor, as part of an ensemble, because I, I really feel like people need to feel comfortable and trusted in order to do their best work. And that's not just the actors. This is the writers, the crew. And I think there is a modicum of respect that can be held and, and given to other people that it shouldn't be so difficult. Well, you probably won't tell me who embodied the things you didn't want to do, but can you tell me somebody that embodied how you did want to sort of model yourself after? I was working once on an episode of NYPD Blue, and I was a guest actor on that show. And I was. Um, I love NYPD Blue. I know. This is a little bit back in the day, so I might be dating myself, but uh, I'm glad you know what I'm referring to. <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, at the time, Jimmy Smits was the lead on that show. And, you know, Jimmy had gotten a lot of rewrites the day that we were shooting a big scene. And uh, one of the rewrites was a long monologue. And, you know, for any actor to get a monologue uh, literally on the day that you're shooting, it's a very scary, frustrating experience. And Jimmy struggled, understandably, with trying to memorize it minutes before he was supposed to shoot it. And as frustrated as he got, he kept it professional and he never made it personal to anyone that he felt was uh, making it difficult for him to do his best work. But, you know, we did have to stop the set and we were delayed. And so we ended up shooting the scene. And then three days after I finished working on the show, I got a knock on my door. And that knock on my door was from a production assistant from NYPD Blue. I opened the door and the PA gave me a note. And it was from Jimmy. And the note said, I'm deeply sorry for how things turned out while you were working there. I just hope we get to work together in the future. And, wow. and I was so touched by that, but it wasn't over. After the note, the PA pulled out, I think at the time, a $2,000 Armani suit. Oh my God. That my character had worn on the episode. And Jimmy had taken it upon himself to go into the wardrobe department, find that suit that had been tailored to me and was way, way more expensive than any suit I could have ever purchased myself. And he gifted it to me uh, as a way of saying thank you and sorry. Do you still have this suit? I do. Have you worn it? I have. It doesn't fit me the same anymore, and it's a little <laughs> bit out of date now. But I keep it because I always remember that gesture. And, you know, there's a line in Willy Wonka that goes, so shines a good deed in a weary world. You know, for all the number ones that I've worked with that have been problematic, I remember him the most because he's the one that tells me that it can be done well. It can be done right. Let's pivot back to Hot Zone. I mean, there's a lot of guilt that Agent Riker feels for being unable to stop the 9-11 attacks. We had warning signs that 9-11 was going to happen. Matthew. Names, addresses even. How do you work on portraying that on screen? A couple of ways. Um, I remember how I felt during 9-11. It's one of those events in our lives that everyone knows where they were on that day during that time. 
And so I remember the feelings very vividly of what I was going through and the fear and the frustration and uh, the uncertainty that I felt. Where were you, by the way? I was in Los Angeles. I just recently moved from New York City, ironically. And I was getting ready to go shoot an episode of a TV show called Charmed. And I got a call from my brother in the morning who said, turn on your TV. And I turned it on just in time to see one of the towers fall. And like so many other Americans and people around the world, I was glued to the TV for the next, I don't know, day, two days and uh, for a a long time. Right. So that memory is very clear and vivid to me and I could draw upon that. I think also part of my research helped me a lot. You know, I spoke to Mm -hmm. some FBI agents and they told me what they did, the lengths to which they went during that time and the guilt that they felt, the duty that they felt, the responsibility that they felt. And it was hearing their stories was really powerful and really fed uh, my performance, I thought, or I hope. (laughs) I just got a call from Florida. They're tracking a possible anthrax attack. If this is the first indicator of a biological attack. Like the one in Toledo? Turned out to be talcum powder? And what was that other one? College jock wrote anthrax on his protein powder so his roommates wouldn't use it. Well, the story of the series is based on true events surrounding the anthrax attacks of 2001. America has now confirmed several different cases of anthrax exposure in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C., How do you approach a role like this as an actor? Like, do you feel a greater sense of responsibility to get things right? It's a great question. And the answer is yes. I think any time that you deal with an event that's true and as monumental as this one, there is a responsibility to try and get things right. And I give a lot of credit to the writers and the producers uh, because they really sweated is that a mm. word they mm-hmm. they were they were sweating the details to make sure that we were not being unfair in our portrayal of people and events mm. well this isn't really a spoiler but there's a scene in the fourth episode where you are talking to your partner on the case and she's kind of you know poking fun at you for not taking risks very often and you say That shouldn't be any secret that when you're the only kid in school who doesn't fit the pattern, especially back in the 70s, and now you're the only guy in your department who breaks the mold, yeah. You spend a lot of useless energy being the poster child for following the rules. Was that in the original script or was that something you brought to the character yourself? There was a version of that in the original script. And uh, I'm very grateful to the writers that we were able to work together to kind of punch it up to something that spoke to me a little bit more directly. Uh, And I mean, I think the character thinks of himself as an outsider for a number of reasons. But what was really nice was that we were able to address his ethnicity within the show. Uh, And, you know, how much we did as a matter of whether we should have done more or whether it was enough, that's up for debate. But I think it was really crucial that if you have someone who looks like me playing this role, that somehow, somewhere that should be addressed, um, especially because he's playing the face of the FBI. Hmm. I, I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone that there are a lot of parallels between the anthrax scare and the pandemic both in terms of the intersections of science and government kind of working together or not. And another unfortunate similarity between the current and the past with this anthrax scare has been the scapegoating of communities. And 
How much of that was on your mind while making this series? It, it was not lost on me that the most egregious acts against the AAPI community were happening as we were talking about mm -hmm. the events after 9-11. And both the COVID-19 pandemic and 9-11 were, were monumental in that they brought the country and the world together for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the initial reaction was, we got to figure out how to, to solve this. Let's follow the rules. Let's band together. And then the scapegoating started in the case of 9-11 against the Muslim American community and in the case of the pandemic against the Asian American community. And then there were conspiracy theories that emerged, you know, as a result of both of these events. So you're absolutely right when you say that there were a lot of parallels and all of it fed into my character. And the fact that we were pretty much under house arrest because of this COVID lockdown provided me a situation where there was really no escaping the circumstances I was around. And so I was living this character in a way that I hadn't anticipated, even when I left the set. Well, I was going to ask, like, did you experience that fear directly? During this period, I was going from set to home and set mm -hmm. to home and really nowhere else. So I wouldn't say that I experienced it directly. Um, I was like everyone else. Uh, reading the news, checking mm -hmm. my social media feed, and being barraged on a daily basis. And my family is no stranger to uh, violence toward Asian Americans. I, I think um, I've told the story about my sister. Uh, it happened, I think, right as Trump became president. And my sister was running on the shoulder of a a road in her neighborhood where she ran hundreds if not thousands of times and a man came up to her and shouted at her to get off the road and then my sister went further to the side of the road and then he pulled up and tried to hit her and then my sister thinking that this what was happening couldn't be true just started running on the sidewalk and then this mm -hmm. man drove up onto the sidewalk oh my God. to try and hit her. All the while calling her racial slurs. And when he drove up onto the sidewalk, he hit her and sideswiped her and she fell to the ground. And her injuries were such that uh, a former marathon runner could no longer run without pain. Uh, and she lives with that pain to this day. Now, the incident is one source of trauma, but what was a bigger source of trauma for her was the way the justice system failed her. The DAs reduced the sentence to something like reckless driving instead of, you know, attempted manslaughter. And when there was sentencing involved, the defendant said to the judge that he had planned a vacation with his wife. Could he wait to serve his sentence until after his vacation was done, and the judge agreed to it. Wow. How do you not let the rage that you feel as a brother sort of overpower the change that maybe you can do with sort of calmness? Like, I know if I heard that happened to someone I loved, I would be angry, and I would just want to <laughs> break everything, but you took action in a different way. 
Um, well, you're right. I had all of those impulses because I'm human, mm -hmm. you know, and anytime a loved one is hurt physically or psychologically, it affects me deeply. And, you know, I can't say that all of my thoughts were pure and, <laughs> you know, moral, but a lot of worse things happen to a lot of people every day. And that is not meant at all to diminish or minimize what happened to my sister. It is meant to contextualize it. Mm -hmm. My sister is an unfortunate statistic, but one of many. And when you look at the larger picture and to see what's happening to a community, and even if you expand outward to see what's happening to our country and our society, it's, it's important, I think, to address the larger issue, and that is scapegoating, division, polarization, hatred, uh, writ large. I think that is the real heart of the issue. Mr. Kim, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Cohen. And, uh, You've done a lot of work. You've testified before Congress. It's crucial that we have reliable reporting for these hate crimes and an infrastructure that makes it easy for people for whom English is not their primary language. You know, sometimes when actors or creatives do advocacy work or anything related to politics, um, there's a sort of stay in your lane backlash. Did you experience any of that? Did even like the people that, you know, work for you, your agents or managers suggest maybe this isn't the thing you want to do? Yes. <laughs> they, my, you know, to the first part of your question, that is, I've gotten plenty of tweets from people saying, shut up and act, you know, or mm -hmm. I used to like you until you opened your big mouth, that kind of thing. And those are, those are some of the nicer ones, but you know, Social media is a blessing and a curse. And I think one of the things uh, that I've come to learn over the past year is that you're never gonna be able to please everyone all of the time. And there will always be a number of people who disagree with what you're saying. And some will not be very pleasant about it. That's a change in my perspective because at one point I thought, look, if we can just get the message out there, everyone will see the sense in what we're saying. but. Our country doesn't work like that, right. and, and nor should it maybe, right? I no longer speak to the ones who are hard and fast in their ways of thinking, but the people I speak to are the ones who maybe aren't educated about the issue or want mm -hmm. to learn about the issue but don't have a way in, and the people who are more reasonable in their thought so that they're open to uh, learning. And so I try to, to think of those people when I post and speak on these issues. More with Daniel Day Kim after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Here's the rest of my conversation with Daniel Dakim. You started out your career in theater, and in school you double majored in theater and political science. Did you feel like you needed a backup plan? Well, I didn't start college interested in acting. In mm -hmm. fact, I had no desire to be an actor when I entered. You know, uh, I was thinking I was going to be a lawyer because, you know, in my family, you were either a doctor, lawyer, or a garbage man, one of those three. Um, and so 
I took an acting class uh, second semester of my sophomore year because I had an elective to fill. And that's where my life changed. Tell me what it was about that class. Was it the teacher that you were just like, oh, my God, this is what I want to do? Like, what sparked it for you? The thing I remember at the time more than anything was the freedom I felt when I was given license and permission to be someone, to be heard, to be seen. And it it took a lot of self-analysis for me to come to that conclusion that it was about my need for expression. And I think most of us who choose to become actors have something of this need for expression, validation, creative outlet. And so it was a combination of all of those things. And I learned that I have uh, relatives in my family who were artists dating back generations. And I'd never once known that while I was was growing up. It was kind of a closeted part of my family. How did you find that out? Well, once I committed to it, then my mom was kind of like, well, you know, your aunt is a really good visual artist and your uncle was a really good singer. And, you know, and so it was all kind of trickling out. Thanks, mom. (laughs) And my dad loves the karaoke mic and he was always singing when I was a kid. And, and, you know, he taught himself how to play the harmonica. So there is art. There there are arts in my background, for sure. Do you remember what or who maybe made you want to be an actor in the first place? I don't know if I know the answer to that question, but <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I I do remember when I was a kid seeing Top Gun and thinking, wow, man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I remember actually from that point following Tom Cruise's career thinking like, look what he's doing. He's the leading man and then he's doing serious roles like Born on the Fourth of July and you know he's doing action roles and serious roles and comedy roles. I could do that. And Uh little did I know at the time how far away that kind of thinking was from the reality of a a person who looks like me playing roles like he was playing at the time. But, you know, that's part of the beauty of youth, right? Your naivete and your innocence thinking that (laughs) anything can happen. But like, what were your goals as, you know, a young actor starting out? I didn't really have specific, like a specific trajectory in mind, you know, but I really felt like I could be an actor in the movies that I loved. I remember one of the biggest auditions I had when I just started out was James Cameron's Aliens, the the sequel to Alien. Oh, my God. And and it wasn't even when I say audition, I'm overstating it. I remember... (laughs) I remember how much I loved Alien, and I thought, I would love to be in that movie. So I, <laughs> it seems so funny when, you, when I think about it now, but I uh, contacted my agent at the time, who was literally in a one-room office in an old building in the middle of Manhattan. And I said, I want to be in that movie. And so my agent took out a piece of paper and a pen and started writing a handwritten note saying, my client, Daniel Kim, would like to audition <laughs> for a role in Aliens. And she, she wrote it right in front of me as if to prove to me that she was doing, working hard to make this happen. Me not knowing a thing about how the business worked, I was watching her fold up the letter, put it in an envelope, and she was going to mail it off. And I was like, there it is. That, 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 that's, that's what's going to get me an audition for Aliens. You know, you know the ending to the story. There was no audition and I'm not in that movie. (laughs) That gave me so much Joey vibes, but I love it. Like Joey Tribbiani. That's right. That's That's so funny. 
Um, I, I've read before that your dream role was to play Henry V, you know, Shakespeare's famous war play. What was it about that character? Um, you know, most young actors dreamed of playing Hamlet. And I went to a classical kind of training program. And we did a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Chekhov. And when I first started reading Henry V, it resonated with me because of my interest in politics and leadership. And the speeches that Shakespeare writes for that character, I find so beautiful and inspiring. That he, which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put in... In some ways, it's the opposite of Hamlet, who is prevaricating and trying to figure out what he should do. There is no doubt in Henry's mind what needs to be done. It's a matter of whether he can convince you to join him to do it. He that shall live this day and see old age would yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. And I think that, for whatever reason, really appeals to me. It continues to appeal to me because it's an examination of leadership. And it's not all one-dimensional. He has moments of doubt and quiet doubt. This reminded me of all the leaders in my life who I admired, like Martin Luther King, you know, who publicly would be so charismatic and inspirational. But you know that in the quiet of night, he struggled and he hurt and he wondered and doubted. And to me, that's something that I would love to explore further. Do you still wish to play Henry V? And like, if it's not like in the Shakespearean way, like, could you see yourself developing a show where it's sort of an adaptation of that dynamic, that tale? Yes, I would love to play a leader. You know, one of the things that has been very difficult for Asian American men in particular is to be a type A alpha male, because the stereotypes in our society are that there were asexual, were beta males. And so if you look at my career also, you've seen a plenty of roles where I support the lead characters, but very rarely have you seen me actually be the man who initiates the action, our protagonist, literally. So that has everything to do with our perception in society and how that trickles into the roles that we're eligible to be cast in. Was there a moment when you were prepared to leave it? Yes, many. You know, it's never a straight line. There were times where I was so incredibly discouraged. In fact, I did leave for a year in the early 2000s. And, you know, my son had just been born. And I thought, I can't make a living being a starving actor. I have a family now to feed. And so I left the business. And I had a real job, quote unquote, for uh, a year and a half. And then I got... What was that job? uh, I knew you were going to ask that. I was... Tell me. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was working on a website and he asked me to come along and do some potential marketing and publicity for the website. And so I went and worked for that company for a year and a half. And then the producers of a show called Angel called my manager saying, there's this role, would Daniel be interested in auditioning? And I auditioned and that role brought me back into the business. And then two years later, I booked Lost. So it was kind of the second stage of my career. Were you good at the other thing? Did you enjoy 
doing the other thing? There were things I liked about that other career. You know, I liked being free of my packaging, you know, because huh. what we do as actors, we cannot escape our appearance. And we're defined by it. And that's not just about race. That's about whether you're tall or short or fat or thin or whatever, you know. People size you up and assess whether you're worthy of doing this job based on what you look like. Uh, and it was really nice to be free of that in this other job. That said, did I enjoy it as much as acting? No way. I mean, yeah. and that was what was clear to me. Sometimes you have to leave something to understand how much you love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think most people will agree that you got your sort of superstar break on Lost, on which you played Jin Soon Kwan. And I know you've talked about how you had conversations with the creators of Lost, Damon Lindelof and J.J. Abrams, about the pilot and your sort of concerns about your character playing into stereotypes. And I know that they had assured you that there would be development with your character. But as someone that was like you uh, taught to sort of keep your head down and just, you know, work hard and good things will come if you do. I'm curious, like how nerve wracking that was for you, you know, speaking up in that way. So nerve wracking. It still is, by the way, Yvonne. Mm -hmm. Like it, people think that I'm, I'm, you know, I speak out all the time, so it should be easy. It's never easy. You know, I'm in a situation right now on one of my projects where I have to speak up, not just for myself, but for other people of color. And it's stressful. It's very stressful because you don't want to be considered the diversity police or the inclusion police. Yeah. You, would, you would want to think that there are people who see this issue and care about it in the same way. Um, so I'm super grateful to JJ and Damon for being open to that conversation because my greatest fear was that Loss would be canceled after the pilot or a few episodes where the only portrayal of my character was one of a domineering Asian husband. You know, I just didn't want to have anything to do with feeding into a stereotype. Thankfully, it went for six seasons. And, you know, I don't think it's immodest of me to say that I think my character went through one of the largest changes through those six seasons mm -hmm. of any of them. And I'm so grateful for that. Can I ask just as somebody that has had to have like those times where you do speak up and it doesn't come naturally and I find that I like write out what I'm going to say, I rehearse it or like I put on that song that's going to hype me up. Did you go through that yourself before that conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I remember writing an email at first. And that email sat in my box for days because I kept reviewing it, like changing commas yeah. and like making sure this word wasn't too strong or, you know, and not being too wordy or being sure that you know, every, every consideration of everyone else other than yourself, right? And, mm -hmm. and I, I remember sending that email, reading it after I sent it. Like, like how does it sound <laughs> now? As if it would have changed uh, in the transmission, you know? And, but even now when I, you know, when I spoke to Congress, I made sure that I was clear about the things that I was saying. This was not a late night term paper that I was writing, you know? And as difficult as it can be to speak up, the one thing I will say is that it does get a little bit easier each mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Not just because we have experience at doing it, but the recipient of that conversation will also know that you've done it before. Right. 
I mean, you decided to stay in Hawaii after loss, and you mentioned in previous interviews that you, you know, took a pay cut to play Chin on Hawaii Five-0. Given your success at the time, why did you decide to do that? Because my family was my priority. Uh, and I had two boys, one of whom was about to enter high school and the other was in elementary school. And the last thing I wanted to do was to up and move them at that age to a city like Los Angeles or New York. We loved living in Hawaii where we didn't feel exceptional in terms of ethnicity. We're part of the majority here. They were happy here. And so there was a, a sense of belonging that I had never had up until then. And I thought that for the sake of their happiness and continuity of their experience, I would do what it took to stay here. Mm. Well, we know that you left Hawaii Five-0 in 2017 after CBS failed to match your pay to that of your white counterparts. I'm curious to hear about how you first found out about that. Oh, I knew from the very start. The tricky part was that the pay cut was drastic from Lost, and, and yet I chose it. The question is, when is it going to be made right? And when mm -hmm. do I have the sense of agency to say, okay, that was then, this is now. The circumstances have changed, and now I have a choice. And so for me to choose A, it will require this. And if mm -hmm. I don't get this, I will easily choose B. And so it wasn't a difficult decision, you know, when it, when it was put in those terms. By that point, my oldest son was graduating high school. So, you know, my life circumstances had changed. And so I made a choice for myself. Mm -hmm. Since that time, do you feel like much has changed? Like, do you think that woke people up or not enough? It's both. I mean, there has been positive change. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a network that never had an Asian lead now has several. And mm -hmm. uh, that would not have happened as recently as five years ago. I'm sure of it. And so there's definitely change. And yeah. when you think of inclusion and this idea of diversity on a larger scale, there's much more that we need to do. I just want to get to a point where it's normalized and we don't have to continue talking about it because it's understood that anyone of any race or any gender can play anything. Uh-huh. Well, during your time at CBS, you started a production company, 3AD. Perhaps the best known project to come out of it to date is The Good Doctor, which is based on a South Korean series. And I know you've talked about how you wanted an Asian lead on the show, but Freddie Highmore ultimately became the lead. Can you talk about what happened and like, what have you learned from that experience in terms of what the trade-offs or sacrifices are that you have to make in making a show? <laughs> it's always about power. Power, and if you don't have power, what do you do to get power? Mm -hmm. And anytime you're working on a TV show or a film, it is a collaborative process. You have to suss out the leverage that you have to make the changes or create things that you want. And you also have to understand when you don't have that leverage and you need to concede. And I don't mean concede in necessarily a negative way. I mean, you just, you make these small concessions and you win some things. Do you think with the success of The Good Doctor, like, do you feel like that gives you more leverage now when 
wanting to put your foot down on casting since then? He nodded with a smile. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I think that's how this business works. And that's how you earn your stripes. And and that's not unlike any other business. You got to earn it. And it's important also to mention here that Freddie Highmore is fantastic in this show. And I don't regret for a second having him be our lead. He has been an incredible ambassador, a fantastic actor. And I don't think the show would be a success without him. What is it? like being in the rooms now trying to pitch your productions like what have you learned a lot a lot um some of it is really wonderful and liberating and some of it is very uh discouraging frankly and soul destroying (laughs) um you know because you ask the question uh, have has there been progress and has there been enough progress and when you're in the room where it happens it's a privileged place to be but you also are right in the crossfire of seeing where progress stops Mm -hmm. and seeing how far you have to go and those are not easy situations to navigate so um i guess that the years of experience I've had has informed how I navigate those situations. And I'm glad with, with each experience that doesn't kill me, hopefully it makes me stronger. <laughs> <laughs> That's it from us here at The Envelope. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow The Envelope wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review and recommend The Envelope to a friend. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This episode was produced and edited by Asal Asanapur, Hiba Elarbani, Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer, Jasmine Aguilera. Our engineer and composer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Shawnee Hilton, Clint Shaw, Tova Weinstock, Amy Wong, Chris Price, Ross May, Patricia Gardner, Jeff Berkshire, Elena Howe, and Matt Brennan. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.